We continue this morning our series through the book of James. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2. We're going to consider this morning the first 13 verses. James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You, stand over there, or sit down here at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, he has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I think we found from what we've looked at in James 1 that James is really clear, isn't he? James' James's writing is really, really direct. You don't come away from him wondering what he's talking about. Any ideas what the theme is of this text? It's really clear, right? It's partiality, as the ESV translates it, or favoritism. I'm going to opt for favoritism throughout this sermon. It's, it's the same thing. But that's what James is talking about here. The, the word literally means to receive according to the face. In other words, to make judgments about people based on external appearances. We can't help but notice the external appearances of those we encounter, can we? We, we see people and we discern very quickly their height. We can guess with their weight and age. The gender is usually pretty clear. Ethnicity, we, we see that. We, we can discern how they're dressed and guess whether or not they likely have a lot of money and nice things. We can discern what kind of mood they're in, whether they appear approachable or somewhat off-putting. And from these observations, we naturally can form judgments about them. We do this. And oftentimes, the judgments we, we form, if we're honest, we, we, we have to admit are not particularly accurate. Now, none of this is necessarily wrong. But the problem comes when, on the basis of some aspect of their appearance, we treat one person better 
than the other. To make sure his readers know exactly what he's talking about when he tells them in verse 1, don't show favoritism, James gives them a powerful and provocative example in verses 2 through 4. We just read that. And we're not told exactly why they've gathered, though it's probably, I think, most likely a gathering for their weekly worship. We don't know if the two men who enter are followers of Christ or not. But it's likely that they are unfamiliar with the meeting, given the fact that they needed some direction. But what we do know is that they could not have looked any more different as they enter. One wore gold rings and had nice clothes, literally shining raiment. The other guy, not so much. His clothing is described as shabby, and that word is more literally translated filthy. His appearance and smell would have been repulsive, perhaps in many ways, like the typical homeless person that we might encounter today. And solely based on outward appearance, the rich man is treated better than the poor man. We certainly understand the difference between rich and poor. But how these two categories look in our world is quite a bit different than in the world James was writing in. For one thing, in James's day, there was virtually no middle class. I read an estimate that 8% of the population had wealth. Another 2% were gaining it, and it was really hard then to climb the ladder economically or socially. And the remaining 90% lived in conditions that we might describe as poor. So we still have ways today of despising the poor, but one thing that is different in our day is that we differentiate between the poor. That wasn't happening so much then. Duraney explains well that our society is a meritocracy. If someone has skills, training, a good worth and a good work ethic, they will rise. If not, they'll likely fail. So in our world, unlike in James's world, financial poverty does not by itself make someone an outcast. If a poor young person is bright, articulate, talented, winsome, or attractive, our world will likely treat them well because they can foresee a promising future. So as we reflect on this text, we ought to look beyond just money and possessions and consider how we treat people differently who to us might appear poor in other areas, like perhaps personality, mind, or body. And if we're honest with ourselves, we must admit that we're really good, aren't we? We're really good at justifying our own prejudices. We are masters of justifying our own preferential treatment. But when we treat people differently based on our prejudices and preferences, we are, as James says here in verse 4, we are guilty of making distinctions and judging with evil thoughts. Kind of strong, isn't it? Really? That seems a bit strong. I mean, it's not really like that. She's just not my style. Or 
you know, he's just a lot more difficult than other guys. That very well may be true. And yes, I probably am. But underneath all of how we treat others based on our prejudices and preferences, there is something going on in our heart. And just like James told us in chapter 1, and as he will tell us again in chapter 4, the source of our sin of favoritism is our own heart, not other people or circumstances outside of us. James gets right to it in verse 1, doesn't he? He tells them, don't show favoritism as you hold to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then throughout this text, he proceeds to give them reasons why they should not do so. In verses 5 through 6, he mentions that it is contrary to God's character. In verses 6 and 7, he says showing favoritism is contrary to common sense. And then last, he shows them that it's contrary to God's law. We're going to look at those three points. But before we do, let's consider the connection of this passage to its context. As we heard from Dan last week, end of chapter 1 of James, we heard that genuine faith not only receives the word, but it puts it into practice. So wherever there is genuine faith, there will be evidence. Look, if you will, at chapter uh, verse 27 of chapter 1 religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this Here, here's genuine faith visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world so, so as we considered last week true faith shows loving action toward the weak and vulnerable and it's distinct it is separated from the world. And both of these signs of true faith have everything to do with what James is saying in our text today about favoritism. Think about it. If we're showing favoritism, it is unlikely that we will rightly care for widows and orphans. We're not going to be prone to help the vulnerable. And since treating people differently based on outward appearances is what our world does, it is impossible to practice favoritism and remain unstained, separated from the world. So the point here, as James enters into this text, is that genuine faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and favoritism don't go together. Those two things are incompatible with each other. So after telling them not to show favoritism, James begins to give his reasons. And the first reason for not showing favoritism is that it is contrary to God's plan of salvation. Contrary to God's plan of salvation. Verses 5 and 6, James says, Listen, has not God chosen the poor who are in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Deuteronomy 10, we see God says there that he is not partial. God does not favor the rich. So favoritism at its core violates the character of God. 
And since it it violates God's character, it naturally follows that it violates his plan of salvation. So James is saying, when you dishonor the poor, you are contradicting the mind of God. As we considered in chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, it is God's own will that brings us forth by the word of truth. God sovereignly chooses or elects people for salvation. And the pattern all through Scripture shows Him choosing for salvation those who are poor in the world or, or those who the world considers to be poor. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 1, where he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So conversion is a powerful evidence of God's deep regard for those who the world considers to be poor. So it does not mean that God doesn't choose for salvation anyone that the world would consider to be rich. All we have to do is look in our Bibles, right? Abraham, Job, Those guys were extremely wealthy. Levi the tax collector, Zacchaeus, and others both in Scripture and in human history provide sufficient evidence that the Lord has nothing against the rich as such. But the reality is that their conversion is rare because as a general rule, those who are materially rich are less likely to to see their spiritual poverty. Think of the story of the rich young ruler in Luke 18. After the rich young ruler left Jesus, very sad, because Jesus had told him, you cannot follow me and continue to love your money. Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Camels don't fit through needle eyes, right? So those that were around Jesus basically said, so it's impossible for a rich man to be saved? Jesus answered, what is impossible with men is possible with God. He can, and he does choose for salvation those who the world considers to be rich. But as Matyar says well, the preponderance of the Lord's concern is shown for those who are towards the bottom of of the world's heap. So in light of God's response to the poor in his redemptive plan, we shouldn't show favoritism towards those who the world considers to be rich. Because to do so is contrary to God's saving plan. The second reason James gives his readers for not showing favoritism is that it's contrary to common sense. It's contrary to common sense. He, he picks this up at the end of verse 6. And first he says, Are not the rich those who are exploiting you? The ones who oppress you? Israel was a small and densely populated land, and there were a very small number of wealthy landowners and merchants that were driving the poor from the land. And they were making these people even more poor. 
James goes on and says, aren't the rich the ones who drag you into court? So the rich were using their influence to gain an appearance of legality as they threw the poor off their land, and then they they could charge high interest rates, impose fines for late payments, and then they would use the courts to force these poor people to have to lose their inheritance. He asks them thirdly, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? We don't know precisely what these slanders were, but perhaps rich Jews slandered Christians for their claims about Christ and their resolve to follow his teaching. So what James is doing, he's showing them how irrational it was for them to favor the rich when it was the rich that were directly hurting them. What were they thinking? Right? I, we could never be so clueless today, right? As one commentator pointed out, there is danger for Christians in our country to pay homage to the rich, especially when they might give to our Christian causes. And we line their pockets by buying their goods, even when they do us no good. Materialism perverts our soul. Sin is irrational, right? And it fosters, this materialism fosters what what Hughes calls spiritual derangement. And that, he says, is the only explanation for the adulation we give to selfish celebrities and high-profile public superstars who spend their lives exploiting followers of Christ and who explicitly ridicule all things Christian. The third and final reason James gives for not showing favoritism is because it's contrary to God's law. This, I think, is his biggest argument. It's his most developed argument. And we see it beginning there in verse number 8. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. The passage from Leviticus that Ethan read earlier It said, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. And then in verse 18, as it ended, God said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Centuries later, there was a Jewish expert on God's law. He just happened to be a lawyer. And he thought he could stump Jesus by asking Jesus, which of the commands was the greatest? Jesus replied to him and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So James is likely referring to this command to love your neighbor as yourself as the royal law in the sense that it's the law of the kingdom. And it is the law of King Jesus. Jesus says, love your neighbor. And he shows us how to love our neighbor. 
by his birth in a stable that we celebrate this Christmas season, Jesus became our neighbor. And by his sacrifice on the cross, he demonstrated the extent of his love for us. Sometimes we occasionally hear people say something like, we don't need to live by laws. We just need to love each other. Do you ever hear that? Right? It's somewhat common. And we can certainly sympathize with the idea that anyone who truly loves doesn't need the law. Yet we should never pit love and the law against each other. For love and God's law are perfectly coherent. So love your neighbor as yourself is the royal law that stands at the core of God's law. And it is violated whenever we show favoritism. Okay, okay, one might say. All right, I, I stand guilty as charged. But, but, you know, treating that person differently isn't really that big of a deal. And besides, I, I keep the big laws, like don't murder, don't commit adultery. Well, actually, according to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you don't. But even if you could keep the big laws, it really doesn't matter because James says here that failing to love others by showing favoritism makes you guilty of breaking all of God's laws. We naturally think that like with the laws of our land, we can obey God's laws partially. All or nothing Really? All or nothing seems really unrealistic. And it actually sounds pretty harsh. Kind of like getting the death penalty for a parking ticket. How can James say that to break one of God's laws is to break them all? Well, in the words of Johnson, the commandments are not just a text, but someone speaking. And that which gives the law its indivisible nature is the character of God who spoke it. Did you catch that in our reading today from Leviticus? After each commandment, I am the Lord. Because of that, there is nothing arbitrary about the commandments of the law. Every single one of them reflects some aspect of God's nature. So to disregard a single command of God and say it doesn't really apply to me is to say that there is some aspect of the nature of God that doesn't matter as far as I'm concerned. So we we tend to view God's law like a pile of stones. We can take one stone from the pile, break a law, and leave the rest of the pile intact. But it's described so effectively by Motyer. God's law is actually like a sheet of glass. When we throw a stone at it, even though it strikes only one place, it fragments the whole. A break at one point cannot be contained. The cracking spreads over the entire area. See, if God's laws were merely a series of individual commands like a pile of rocks, 
we could assume that disobedience of a particular command would incur guilt for that command only. But in fact, every individual command is part and parcel of one indivisible unified whole because they all reflect the will of one lawgiver. So so do we see then, can we see here, how showing favoritism is really not a trivial thing? It's really not a trivial matter. It's, It's a sin against the God who is love. And doesn't show favoritism. It's a violation of his law to love our neighbor as ourselves. And therefore, favoritism is an affront to God himself. And so James says in verses 12 and 13, Be constantly speaking and always be acting as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So James here is calling them to validate the reality of their faith by doing the word. And he warns about future judgment, stating that conformity to the demands of the law will be the criterion of that judgment. He says they're going to be judged according to the law of liberty. Have you ever heard or considered God's law as the law of liberty? Have you ever thought of God's law as giving freedom? We tend to see his law as restrictive, right? And that's a really negative thing. It tells us what we can't do, which of course is always the things we want to do. And it tells us what we must do, which of course are the things we don't want to do. Don't we naturally think, I want to be free. I want to be free to do what I want, we say. All the while failing to realize that freedom from God's law is no real freedom at all. It is the path of slavery to sin that will destroy you. God's law is liberating. It graciously frees us from the slavery of sin. In just a couple weeks, Christmas will be here. And there's a really good possibility that one of the presents opened in your home will need to be assembled. Right? I mean, I love the ones that say no, no assembly required, but, but they're there, right? And a lot of good ones have to be put together. Now, if you're smarter than I am, you might be able to put the thing together without looking at the instructions. It's possible. But who hasn't jumped into putting something together on their own only to get stuck, leaving them no choice but to rummage through the box, to find the directions, and see what they're supposed to do? Now, were those instructions restrictive? Oh, yeah. They absolutely were. They spelled out, even with pictures, the one way the parts had to be put together. But the only way to experience the freedom of of enjoying the present was to follow the instructions. God's law, the law of liberty, is like those instructions. 
we were made to live as our Creator. God Himself designed us to live. His law is not a set of threatening restrictions that enslave us to a life of misery. No, they're wonderful instructions from the manufacturer himself, graciously given to us so we can know what we were made for and how to live in true freedom. James says in verse 13 that this judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Essentially, he transforms Jesus' beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy to... Cursed are those who are not merciful, for they will not be shown mercy. Jesus paints the scene of this judgment in Matthew 25, where he gathers all the nations together and he he separates out the sheep from the goats. And then King Jesus, the Lord of glory, turns to the sheep on his right and he says, Come, you who are blessed to be my, by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. He then turns to the goats on his left and says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. So James can say, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. We probably don't think and talk about this future judgment as much as we should. But there are lots of places in the New Testament where we see that Christians will be judged on the basis of conformity to the will of God expressed in Christ's teaching. One such place is in 2 Corinthians 5.10, where Paul says we make it our aim to please Him because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, now we must not think here that the way to receive mercy at this judgment is to show mercy to others. No, don't think that. That is salvation by works. The ground or basis of our salvation from God's wrath is the life and death of Jesus on our behalf, both as that which forgives us for our sin and that which frees us from our sin. In ourselves as believers in Christ, we will always deserve God's judgment. Conformity to the royal law is never perfect, as it must be. But as Mu says, very helpfully, a merciful attitude and actions will count as evidence of the presence of Christ within us. And it is on the basis of this union with the one who perfectly fulfilled the law for us that we can have confidence of vindication at the judgment. Think of God's mercy towards us. According to his great mercy, 
He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And as Titus writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, in envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So as poor, dead sinners, we have been shown incredible mercy. And if indeed we have been transformed by the power of the gospel, if indeed we are united to Christ through faith, then we will show mercy to others. Not perfectly. Not even as consistently as we should. But our lives will be characterized by mercy because we have experienced the mercy of God in a supernatural, life-changing way. So mercy then triumphs over judgment because the quality of mercy exercised by the believer is the quality of genuine faith. It is the quintessential work that manifests true belief in the God of mercy. Faith without works is dead. In the words of Blazowski from a sermon he preached on this passage, God's people are people of mercy. And we can be confident, we can trust that we will be delivered at the judgment, not because of what we do, but because of what God has done within us. And there is evidence in our lives. So I wonder this morning, have you experienced the personal saving mercy of God? Have you personally experienced God's mercy? You know, the day is coming when you will stand before Christ, the Lord of glory, What hope do you have when you face him? What hope are you taking with you to the judgment of Christ? You might try really hard to be a good person, but have you perfectly kept God's law? Have you gotten 100% on that? You haven't. None of us have, which means that you are guilty and you will face God's just judgment unless you turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, who perfectly kept every law, and He died in your place to pay the penalty for your law-breaking. On the cross, God's mercy triumphed through the judgment for sin placed on Christ, and through faith in Him, you can experience God's undeserved mercy and never face His judgment for your sin. If you desire God's mercy and freedom from your bondage to sin, acknowledge before Him your spiritual poverty. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. As we conclude, I think it would be good for us to consider some application of this text for us as a church. 
it's a, it's a huge encouragement to me to observe week in and week out so many of you who are responsive and welcoming towards visitors. It, it's really rare for me to see somebody come through our doors and not be approached or welcomed by someone. And, and as, as we meet with new people, one of the things we consistently hear is how much they are struck by our warm and welcoming spirit. If you visit with us today, we're glad you're here. And, and I hope that you have observed this and experienced this to some extent, even in the time you've been with us. But let's remember that this work of welcoming outsiders is not just for the greeters. It's not just for the extroverted amongst us. No, showing love to those who visit is the responsibility of every member. And as we think about visitors, let's always remember that whether wealthy or poor, single or with 10 kids, elderly or a teenager, Somalian or Swedish, whether they're a morally upright and polished sinner or an openly blatant sinner, every sinner who comes to our doors needs the gospel, just like all of us. And Christ's people ought to be the most loving people that sinners ever meet. And they ought to be, feel more welcome here than any other place they go. In his autobiography, Mahatma Gandhi wrote that during his student days, he read the Gospels seriously and even considered converting to Christianity. He believed that in the teachings of Jesus, he could find the solution to the caste system that was dividing the people of India. So one Sunday, he decided to attend services at a nearby church and talk to the minister more about Christianity. But when he entered the sanctuary, the ushers refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go worship with his own people. Gandhi left the church, never to return. And he said, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. As the church of Christ, we are products of God's mercy. And so we must accurately reflect and display His mercy to everyone who walks through our doors. God, help us to never lie about the gospel in the way we treat outsiders. I think there's benefit also in applying this text to how we relate to one another as members. So how we relate to each other as insiders. We might respond well to someone who is new, but as we get to know them, we will inevitably find things out about them that go against our prejudices and preferences. Things that we consider to be poor. You support that presidential candidate? She went there to college or she didn't even go to college. He's a Packers fan? And as we find more and more out about someone... There will be a temptation, I think, to treat that person differently. So it's really good for us, I think, on a regular basis to ask 
whether or not all of our friends are just like us. Do you go out of your way to get to know and spend time with people who are different than you? We are naturally predisposed to love people who are like us and to love people who benefit us in some way. This is normal, right? Birds of a feather flock together. It's, it's normal, it's natural. It isn't necessarily even wrong. But it just doesn't give any evidence of the gospel. It's normal, pagan life. Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And in a parable in Luke 14, Jesus says, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Anyone else here a little convicted? Okay, I, I am. Very much so. Because the gospel is seen most clearly in the love we show for those who are not like us. Those we're not naturally attracted to. Those who are of no particular use to us. The gospel is most clearly shown when we love those who are very difficult to relate to and those with, with whom we share nothing in common but Jesus Christ. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we should try to become best friends with everyone. It's not even possible. But it does mean that we ought to be intentionally reaching out and showing love to those that we aren't naturally drawn to and those with whom we do not naturally spend time. So, Eden Baptist Church, we've heard a word from James. And may the faith that we profess prove to be genuine in the way that we relate to other people. We can never avoid making judgments based on outward appearances, but we must not show favoritism. We must not treat people differently based on what we see. We must be humbled by God's saving plan and consider that He chooses for salvation poor, wretched sinners like you and me. There is nothing attractive about us. We have nothing to contribute to God. Yet in His mercy, He saved us. And we must also be constrained by God's law. He commands us to love others as we love ourselves. We are called by the law which represents God's character to love others the way that Christ has loved us.